so good to be with y'all today. This really is so, so good. Uh, really excited. We're going to move into a new series today. We're going to be in our Bible, we'll be in Matthew chapter 18. And so, man, I just want to say thank you for taking part of your holiday weekend <clears throat> to be here with us, to worship together. And it's been good for my heart already to be with y'all, okay? And we're going to go in Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> and what's so great about Matthew chapter 18 is that this chapter in our Bible is the very first time the word church is mentioned. Specifically, Jesus is going to talk about relationships within the church. You know, how do we go deeper with the Lord? How do we go deeper with one another? And so I want to ask uh, somebody come up here. This is a really special young lady. Nora, come up here really quick. All right. This is Nora. Okay. And uh, as Nora comes up, can you get up there? Or you need some help? You got it? Okay. All right. So uh, Nora is very graciously agreed to come up here. I want you to think about this. All right. Try to remember what it was like. How old are you, Nora? Seven. Seven. All right. Try to remember when you were seven. Can you remember that? That's a long way for me, man. I'll tell you what. Try to think about that for just a moment. Can you recall how different you were? You know, the whole world felt different. You perceived the world differently. You thought differently. You know, the Apostle Paul said, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. And I thought as a child. And so with that, with Nora here, I want you to listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 18, look at verse 1. It says, at that time, what's that time? Jesus had just, in Matthew chapter 17, he had just explained to them that he was going to be arrested, handed over to the authorities, and crucified. In other words, I'm going to be gone pretty soon. All right? And so at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? All right? And I want you to look at Nora and think about this. He called a little child and had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. All right? Think about that statement for just a moment. Whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Thank you, Nora. You can go on to children's church now. All right. It's a lot more fun than adult church. <laughs> All right. So, so great. Let me tell you something that happens when you ask Christ to be your Savior. All right. Four amazing things. Lots and lots of things happen. Okay. But there are four that are huge. Number one, your sins are forgiven. All of them. Past, present, and future wiped clean. You're made righteous, on the, uh, righteous in Christ. You're justified freely. Jesus bore your sins on the cross. All of them. All right. You're filled with his spirit. And it's like, you imagine air filling up a 
a vacuum, the Spirit of God rushes into your soul and it changes you because you're joined together with other Christians in this thing that the Bible calls the body of Christ. And Christians are joined together. And it's, it's really incredible to understand that, that you're never alone because you're joined together into the, the family of God, the body of Christ. And the last one is that you're given new life. You see, Christianity is not turning over a new leaf. I'm going to do better. I'm going to quit cussing. I'm going to quit drinking, you know, and all that kind of stuff. No, Christianity is a new life altogether. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says this, in the same way that Christ was raised up from death, he was resurrected, as, you know, to the glory of the Father, we also may walk in a new life. Jesus is teaching his disciples something here, that once you have a new life, there's a remarkable change that takes place in the, you might say, the spiritual realm. Metaphysically, you become a little child, spiritually. And that means you have a capacity that you did not have before. You have a new life, and living things grow. Children grow. And so the spirit within you, your very soul, is capable of something that it was not capable of before. And what is that? Spiritual growth. And so today our title is Growing Together. Growing Together. I was having a great conversation with a young lady in our faith Bible study one morning a few weeks ago. We were talking about relationships with parents. And she kind of said something sort of like, I feel like with my mom, she's 25 years older than me, I feel like I kind of have to be the adult in our relationship. And I told her, I said, man, I totally understand. Uh, in my relationship with my, with my dad, I often felt like we had that dynamic, that even though I was younger than him, if something good was going to happen in our relationship, like if we were going to say to each other, I love you, I had to be the one to go first. You know, I had to kind of be the adult. I had to initiate it. And I kind of just flippantly said, I said, of course, you know, honestly, as a matter of fact, spiritually, I am older than my dad. And I got to tell you, I, I mean, boom, I had never thought about that. I am older than my father in the most important, critical realm of life, which is spiritually. Now, my dad's with the Lord now, but for most of you know, my adult life, I was actually older than my dad in the spiritual realm. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, my family moved when I was in middle school. And my parents wanted a fresh start, so we were going to go to church. And we went to church. I've told you all this story hundreds of times, but there was an invitation that was given. And the the pastor said, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, then come forward and I'll show you how to be a Christian. So, man, I, I went. I heard Jesus died for me and I couldn't go to heaven without him. So I went forward and I asked Christ to be my Savior. Well, this is an incredible church. It really was. They took our family in, and they just loved on us, loved us unconditionally. And my mom and dad, I remember overhearing them make this conversation, something like this. We got to be committed to church because Les needs us, which was true. I really needed it really, really bad, (laughs) okay? And so we decided to keep going to church. And this church, they knew my dad wasn't a Christian. They knew that he wasn't a believer. My dad grew up in a, in a denomination that didn't really stress having a personal salvation relationship with Christ. It was more about religious rules and regulations, not so much about having a relationship with Jesus. 
And so they began praying for my dad. When I say that, I don't say that flippantly. There were people in that church who were burdened for my father. About six months after I accepted Christ, one Sunday morning, my little sister, who at this time was probably a little bit older than Nora, uh, she was going down front and she asked Christ to be her savior. My mom, she, you know, she was a believer. And so she had that personal relationship with the Lord. And so now it's, it's my mom and me and my little sister and there's my dad. <laughs> And I remember one Saturday, man, dad was in a terrible mood. And I said something to mom. I said, man, what's wrong with dad? And she said, the Holy Spirit, you know, he's under conviction. You know, <laughs> you know, we got church tomorrow and he's just under conviction. Well, it's been almost a year and our church, our family was in church almost every Sunday. We had a guest speaker one Sunday morning and man, he poured it on heavy. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, don't wait. You can't afford to wait. And it came time for the invitation. And I remember as a teenager, man, I put my hands on the pew in front of me. I was praying for my dad. You know, I was just like, you know, Lord, move on my dad's heart. Lord, I want my dad to be saved. You know, I didn't really know much about prayer at that time in my life, but I was just praying for my dad. And I looked up and I looked down front and there was my mom and my dad. And my dad asked Christ to be his Savior. He's 38 years old. He asked Christ to be his Savior. And man, when the pastor came and said, hey, we've been praying for Fred for a long time, man, the church just cheered and they clapped. It was awesome. And the only time in my life I'd ever seen my dad cry. All right, why was that? The Bible says that at that point that my dad was born again. My dad was 38 years old and he was a new Babe, a new believer in Christ, a spiritual birth. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said, I most solemnly tell you, unless a person is born again, reborn from above, he cannot see or experience the kingdom of God. None of us here could begin to explain or express the importance of what Jesus is saying here, that when you accept Christ as your Savior, there is an epic, you know, cosmos shuddering change in you. Your spirit comes to life. There's a resurrection that takes place, and now there's a new life at work in you. And my dad and I were both in this stage of, you might call, spiritual infancy, but I had about a one-year head start on my dad, okay? And I feel very blessed because I had men who invested in my life, and I feel like I did grow spiritually faster than my dad. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said, I had to talk to you in Corinth as though you were infants in Christ. Not that you're not Christians. You're just like infants. You're like babes, some of the older versions say, babes in Christ. Well, here we are in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, there are five speeches. They're called discourses of Jesus. And Matthew 18 is the fourth of these five speeches that Jesus gave, and it's about the church. As I said a moment ago, you're going to see the word church used for the first time in your Bible. Jesus had said, I'm not going to be with you much longer. And then you see this prompts the disciples to ask one of the most audacious questions anywhere in your Bible. Look at verse 1. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Notice, though, that Jesus doesn't condemn his disciples for asking this question or desiring to be great. Because the ambition to achieve greatness, it's central to what it means to be a human being. 
We all want to be great at something. We want to be a great parent, a great husband, a great wife, a great, have a great career, be a great craftsman perhaps in something. And on the natural level, there's nothing wrong or sinful with yearning for greatness. But Jesus' disciples, they believed that a, a new kingdom, kind of like a Camelot, was going to be established on earth, and they want to know, how do you become one of the great heroes, one of the epic figures in this kingdom that's going to come, Jesus? I'm going to ask you to think about this. What enters your mind when you think about greatness? Is it getting into the NFL Hall of Fame? Is it getting the golden buzzer on America's Got Talent? What if you had a statue of yourself in some major city? Wouldn't that be pretty awesome, you know? Or what if you had some kind of an invention or some kind of scientific discovery and generations of people talked about you because of your intellect and all the things that you did? This is what we think about when we think about greatness. And notice what Jesus does here. He boldly challenges every worldly assumption about what it means to be great. He's trying to revise their understanding of greatness. And he said, I want you gentlemen to see greatness as God sees greatness. And greatness as God sees it, you're going to see here is this. Your greatness is reflected in your relationships. And so Jesus is going to address his disciples in this arena. There are relationships in this thing called the church, the gathering or the assembly of God's people. This is what it means to be great. And in Matthew chapter 18, he's going to say, first of all, you got to start caring for the spiritually young. Number two, seek out those who stray from the church. Number three, you have to hold one another accountable for your lifestyle. And number four, when people are repentant, forgive them. And this is what he lays out as a template for greatness. And like an umbrella over this one overarching goal is growing, spiritual growth, the little children growing up and maturing. So you might say growing together. You see, in Christ, we surrender all of our personal preferences for this one goal, all right? This one overarching ambition, and that is the spiritual growth of our brothers and our sisters. Romans chapter 15, Paul said it this way, we who are strong in our faith ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are not strong and not just please ourselves. Let each one of us make it a practice to <clears throat> please his neighbor for his good to build him up spiritually. Do you, ever, do you think about yourself like that? Like, I know a lot of us, if I were to sit down with you over a cup of coffee, I would say, you know, do you, do you think you have the capacity to build someone else up spiritually? Oh, no, no, no. I, I don't spend enough time in the Bible. 
I don't spend enough time in prayer. You know, I've never run anybody. I've been in ministry over 30 years. I've never ran anybody and said, man, I'm spending way too much time praying. Wow. <laughs> I got to slow down. I got to back off the prayer. I got to back off the Bible study. I've never, never done that. Everybody, everybody feels this way. But you notice Paul doesn't put a qualifier like those of you who are mature, you know, like those of you who have arrived, which we never do, then y'all should do this. No, everybody. All of us should be doing this. That's why I see in verse 2, he called a little child, and he had the little child stand among them. And he's not pointing out the innocence of the child. A lot of people make this mistake, or the purity of the child. What is it he wants to point out? The humility. Much more than today, children in the first century had no status. They were very much the overlooked in society. Now, parents were grateful for them, certainly, but children had no rights, really no value apart from their uh, significance to the family, maybe to, to carry on the family name or care for the parents in old age or to help contribute to the family farm or something like that. They were powerless. They were vulnerable. They would die if left alone. And if children were somehow tragically separated from their parents, curtains. And I hate to say that, but it was awful. It wasn't like our society today at all. If you were a child, you desperately needed others. And he makes a startling statement. Look at verse 3, four, three and 4. You need to change, he says, gentlemen. You need to become like little children or you'll never even see the kingdom of heaven, much less be great there. You're not even going to sniff it if you don't get this right. You have to humble yourself like a child. This really throws them off balance. It throws all of us off balance to take the weakness, the defenselessness, and the vulnerability of a child and hold that up as something to aspire to, honestly. But there's a kind of humility that children possess that contrasts the worldly ideas of greatness. Do you remember your social life in elementary school? When you were like when you were Nora's age? No concern for where someone lived, what kind of clothes they wore, how they combed their hair, who saw you with whom. And, you know, we didn't really care about that. But you did have one way of communicating status. Do you remember what it was? It was crayons. You ever thought about this? You knew who the rich kids were, the middle class kids, and the poor kids based on your crayons. Because if you didn't have much money, you just got the package of 12 crayons. You know, red, blue, yellow, green, you know, that kind of thing. If you were middle class, then you got 24 crayons. There's some cool colors in there like lime green and magenta, things like that. But if you really had money, what'd you get? The big box, 64 crayons with the built-in sharpener. You remember that? Yeah. I mean, you come sporting one of those things like, oh, man, you're so rich. Your parents have so much money. In second grade, I had a crush on a girl named Genevieve because I loved to color. <laughs> I loved coloring time. And she had the big box with the 64 colors. And so I would just, you know, sometimes I'd like to look across the room at Genevieve's crayons, you know, and she'd see me look and I'd have to look away, you know. <laughs> had a big crush on, on Genevieve's crayons. But every child would play with every other child, and there were no concerns about social status. And when you were a child, this was because you had a freedom from pride. Children have no pride. 
That's why they you know, freely do things and interact with people without even a second thought. The freedom from pride. But you see, in the culture where these disciples had grown up, which was heavily influenced by Rome, humility was weak and despicable. Humility was for the slaves and the poor. But in stark contrast to that, Jesus made humility the cornerstone of his character and the character of his own disciples. And so he teaches humility here. He said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart. Think about that. And so he teaches humility by example and verbally because humility is the catalyst for the kinds of relationships Jesus wants to see in the gathering of God's people, the church. It is fundamental to what we call redeeming relationships. See, anytime you see that word redemption in your Bible or redeemed in your Bible, it means something like this, to be granted your freedom or to be given deliverance, to be released. And so redeeming relationships are those relationships that result in freedom for the people that are in them. And now I want you to think about this for a moment. How many of your relationships are actually more binding than they are redeeming? But when Christ-like humility begins to permeate your life, what happens? You're free to think more of others. And this change in character results in a change in the character of your relationships. That's why you see Paul saying Philippians chapter 2, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Why? In your relationship with one another, one another, have the same mindset as Christ. More literally, that last phrase means something like this. Think within yourselves the thoughts that were within Christ. Think within yourselves the thoughts that were within Christ. And we've all heard this before many, many times. People don't know, sorry, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Think about this, though, another way. People who know you care, they care about what you know. People, when people know you care about them, then they care about what you know. Why are you the way you are? How'd you get this way? I need to know more. Something incredible happens. You have an opportunity then to contribute to that person's spiritual growth, and nothing in this world is greater. So look at verse 5, because Jesus says this, Whoever welcomes a little child in my name welcomes me. And again, in this setting, he's not referring now to children in the physical sense, but in the or the chronological sense, but in the spiritual sense. The children he's referring to are the children he just defined in the previous verses, those who have humbled themselves, become like little children, and who have been born again spiritually and are now entering into the kingdom of God, the born-again disciples. Now, what does it mean to welcome a little child? Do you remember all the times that you would hold your kids' hands trying to teach them? I was rummaging around in our storage building the other day. This is my boy's first bat. 
And uh, a lot of good memories here. <laughs> and do you remember, uh, some of you dads might remember when you would tell your, tell your kids, you know, I'm going to teach you how to, I'm gonna teach you how to hit, hit a baseball. And like, okay, now I got a door knock knuckles, you know, chicken wing and all that. And I remember really well, we had the you know, little ball, the little tee. And I can remember standing behind my boys and I would tell them, okay, line your knuckles up, line your knuckles up. And I put my hands on their hands. And I would help them bring the ball back, back and say, okay, now smooth and straight, you know? It's all coming back. Wow. <laughs> and I want you to think about this. Uh, when you're putting your hands on your child's hands, trying to teach them how to tie their shoes, trying to teach them how to use a fork, you know, whatever it might be. When you're putting your hands on your child's hands, that's the word that's being used here. It means literally to take the hand, to take the hand teaching them. It also has a more nuanced meaning of receiving a child into your family for the purpose of bringing them up, of educating them. Jesus did this. Luke chapter 9, it says, the people learned where Jesus was. He was trying to get away from the crowds, and they learned where he was, and they followed him. And look at this, he welcomed them, and then what did he do? He talked with them. He taught them about the kingdom of God. And isn't it fulfilling to teach someone who's younger than you are? Watch them gain a new skill. You know, I, you know, I was just, you know, I have the fond memories about the boys because those are such great, that's going to fall over. Those were such great, great times. And when I taught my children how to do things and I, I you know, I, I held out my hands, so to speak, and said, here, let me teach you. <clears throat> we bonded together in those experiences. They're excited to learn how to do something new. And I'm excited watching them learn and grow. <clears throat> the learner and the teacher, so to speak, are having this great experience. All right. We're, we're growing together relationally. And think about it. Growing together in the life of the church, it has those two dimensions, just like the cross. <clears throat> when we're growing together, we're growing up together, there's that vertical dimension. When we get into a home group, we get into a faith Bible study, or a men's Bible study, or a women's Bible study, we get into some kind of group like that, some kind of context, or a ministry team, we're growing up together. But as we're growing up together, what's happening? There's that horizontal dimension. We're growing together. We're growing in togetherness, you might say. And it's so, so powerful. And so here's an axiom of life that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here, and that is this, that spiritual growth is a group, group effort. It always Spiritual growth is always a group effort. See, so many people mistakenly assume that all you need for spiritual growth is a good quiet time. Hey, I'm going to get up every day, I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to spend some time in prayer. And if I do that one day, every day, one day I'll be spiritually mature. And in some branches of Christianity, and particularly in some other world religions like you know, Hinduism and Buddhism, the most spiritual people are considered the most isolated people. People trek to some mountaintop monastery and they isolate themselves for years and they just spend all their time in study and prayer and reflection because they want to remain uninfected by contact with other sinful people, worldly people. This is a gross misunderstanding 
of the fundamentals of spiritual growth. And some of the most egregious theological errors in all of Christendom have come from these spiritual hermits. You know, people who isolated themselves in monasteries and caves and just spent all that time alone. And the saddest part is those people who isolated themselves for years in an effort to get closer to God were actually doing the exact opposite. So I want you to see verse 5 at the very end. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Welcomes me. Do you see the spiritual principle Jesus is teaching you and I here? It's very powerful. Very powerful axiom of the spiritual life. If you want Jesus present in your life, allow younger believers to be present in yours. Again, that doesn't mean you need to commit to youth ministry or children's ministry, although that's where a lot of them are, okay? But it means that you have engineered your life. You've, re, you know, you, you've kind of you know, rethought your life in such a way that you are around other people who are both farther ahead in the spiritual life than you are, but especially those who are a little bit behind where you are in your spiritual life. In other words, a group effort, a group effort. You know, if you look at online today, so many people are agreeing about one thing right now. I mean, we, we disagree about so much in America today, but there is something that so many people do agree on, and it's this. I feel so far from God. I feel so far from God. I, I see this in the books, the magazines, the, the YouTube videos, everything. It's everywhere. And I don't, I don't, I don't, when I say this, please understand, I, I, I do want to say this for humility. Um, I don't remember the last time I felt that way. And the only reason I say that is because I just, from the time I was 22 years old, I've always wanted to invest my life in those who are younger than I. You know, I got to go to youth camp this past summer. It was awesome. It was great. The best part of it for me was we were at youth camp. We had Bible study materials that they had provided for us. And there was some confusion about it. It wasn't really working out so good. And so um, these guys had this kind of long block in the afternoon. There's supposed to be this little Bible study block with their group leaders. And I said, you know what? Let's have men's Bible study. I'll lead it, you know? And so I had all these really tired, you know, exhausted teenage, you know, young men. We call it men's Bible study. It was pretty cool. And they were sleeping. They were nodding off and everything. But, I mean, I was sharing my heart with them. I was having a ball. <laughs> I mean, I really was. I don't know if they got anything out of it, but it was so good for my soul. It was good for me. I don't remember the last time I felt, you know, such a, a sense of God's favor and presence in my life. It was so fulfilling. I just want to ask this question as we, as we conclude today. Are you welcoming little ones into your life? Are you fostering relationships within the body of Christ with those who are older than you? Which we all want that naturally, but what Jesus is challenging us to do here is also to foster relationships with those who are younger than you spiritually. They might be older than you chronologically, but they might be younger than you spiritually because 
Spiritual growth is a group effort. We all need to be more like Christ. And to grow to be more like Christ, we must be in deep relationships with other Christians. God uses people to grow people. And God wants us to grow together, the vertical element, and grow together, the horizontal element. We need to be giving our strength to people who are younger than us on the spiritual plane. Ephesians 4.16, Paul wrote this. It's awesome. Under his control, all the different parts of the body fit together and the whole body is held together. So when each separate part works as it should, the whole body grows. Hmm. So I want to ask you to think about this before you leave today. What do you think it means to be great? You know, Jesus said your greatness is reflected in your relationships. Your greatness is reflected in your relationships. And can I just tell you today, if you want to have better relationships in your home, have better relationships in your church. You be more intentional about the relationships in your home life. Be more intentional about the relationships in your church life because those two things are incredibly intertwined. And redemptive relationships, uh, the kinds of relationships that bring freedom, they're not just passing acquaintances. Hey, did you watch the Cowboys? Which you probably don't want to do that this year, honestly. You know, it's going to be a rough year, okay? Hey, did you watch the Cowboys? Hey, how much rain did you get in your rain gauge last night? Stuff like that. No, redemptive relationships, we are welcoming others into our lives. And we are taking them by hand and saying, here, I want to show you. I want to show you what God has taught me about children, about marriage, about finances, about spiritual life. I want to show you what God has shown me. Growing up together and growing closer together at the same time. And so I just want to throw this out there before we go today. I really want to make an appeal to you because I love you and care about you very, very much. I don't know how you've engineered your life right now, and you might be sitting here saying, man, I do not want to go get into a group. You know, I don't want to do something like that. Whoever welcomes one of these little ones, Jesus said, welcomes me. If you want God to be present and working in your life, in your home, then you need to be welcoming the little ones into your life. And so, yeah, visit the home group table. Go, go to a faith Bible study, 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Get involved in a group like that. Visit the women's Bible study table. Look in your bulletin, gentlemen. There are two men's breakfasts that are going on. And there again, nothing really super deep happens. It's just men getting together, all right, and just welcoming one another into their lives, building those relationships. Get involved in those kinds of things. It is so critical to our lives. Whoever welcomes one of these little ones, welcomes me, Jesus said. Let's bow our heads together for just a moment. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to ask you to think for a moment about greatness. I know all of us here have a vision of greatness. It might have to do with your career, might have to do with the house you're going to live in someday, the land you're going to own someday, the animal you're going to kill or catch someday, the kids, that, the things that they're going to achieve someday. 
the places you're going to go someday on vacation. That's greatness. So I want to ask you to think about this today, though. In your definition of greatness, is there a place for children? Not chronological children, but those who are younger than you spiritually. Those who are a little, a step or two behind you spiritually. Those who need you. And is there a humility that characterizes your life in such a way that you are welcoming those people into your life? And so I just want to ask you to think about that today. And if, if you need more room in your life, because life is so busy, so committed, I understand. But if you need more room in your life, not for what's urgent, but for what's important, not for what's earthly, but what's eternal, then ask the Lord for faith today. Ask the Lord for courage today to kind of do some renovation, to do some remodeling, to do some re-engineering on your life in such a way that you can welcome other people into your life in a very real way and have redemptive relationships with your fellow members of the body of Christ. So I'll be quiet for a couple moments. I want to ask you to lay that before the Lord today because it's so important. And so, Father, I just pray that for all of us here today, Lord, you would just show us what it means to take the hand, to take the hand, Father, of someone near to us, perhaps someone we haven't even met yet, in the context of a home group or a faith Bible study or a men's breakfast or a women's Bible study, Lord, just show us what it means, Lord, to take someone else's hand, to welcome them into our life. And thank you, Jesus, that you have welcomed us into yours. And we just thank you for it. And Lord, I just ask that today would be a day that for all of us here, Father, we could welcome people into our life in a new and fresh way. Just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.